if you're going to push yourself to try new things and do new things, you're going to have some things that just don't work. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 14, and today's guest is Joe Megabo, CEO of Purple. Joe is a really interesting guy and longtime industry friend, and I'm sure you'll enjoy his story. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and today's guest is Joe Megabo, the CEO of Purple. Purple is a digitally native vertical brand with a mission to help people feel and live better through innovative comfort solutions. They design and manufacture a variety of innovative premium branded comfort products, including mattresses, pillows, cushions, frames, sheets, and more. Purple markets and sells their products through direct-to-consumer online channels, traditional retail partners, third-party online retailers, and their owned retail showrooms. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Well, we're really excited to uh, to have you on and, and talk about your business. And I guess in that little preamble, the more products that you're selling um, now include a, uh, a line of masks. You know, we're recording this uh, in early June of 2020. So in, in many locations, we're starting to relax the rules associated with COVID-19. How are you and, and your family doing, Joe? I, uh, we're, we're doing well. My family's doing well. We, uh, we closed our corporate offices mid-March, and sadly, we had just moved into our, our shiny new headquarters where we were only there for, I think, barely five or six weeks before shutting it down. So uh, the good news is I've uh, spent a lot more time at home, which, uh, and my kids who uh, have been, uh, been out of school, remote, remote schooling as well, it's been, uh, been great, as I'm sure with most out there, to uh, have more family time. But working remotely carries... Uh, incredible hours with it too. So it's, uh, as with anything, it's a double-edged sword. So there's a, a lot to get to here. And, you know, I always like to talk uh, with people about, you know, their first story and, and we'll come back to that in a bit. But, um, you know, obviously with uh, being uh, a public company at, at Purple uh, and dealing with, with COVID, um, you know, what can you tell us about, you know, how this has all impacted your business and, and what you're seeing currently and, and what you're seeing in the, in the future months coming? Yeah, we, I mean, certainly this has been a trying time for every company, public or private. You know, fortunately, when I joined a little more than a year and a half ago, we were not a very stable company at that time. We were not profitable. We were burning cash at a uh, concerning rate, did not have the cash balances we needed to uh, continue operations. And we're already public at that point. We, uh, we went public through a less traditional means, uh, a, a SPAC, um, which is uh, different than an IPO. Um, so you know, seeking financing is, is a whole different process if you're already public. Um, so we, you know, we had a lot of work to do over the last year and a half. And uh, fortunately, just the, uh, the diligence and hard work we had done has us now in a place where we are profitable, we are producing cash, and we've got a... Uh, we're young and early days in our maturity curve, but we've got a, a, a company that's operating fairly well right now. Um, I cannot imagine if uh, COVID-19 had hit when we were who we were a year and a half ago. So that, that, that gave us some, some opportunity to be smarter than we probably would have otherwise been. But even with that, you know, we're, the mattress industry is pretty interesting in that it's, a, it's still a fairly traditional industry uh, and very brick and mortar focused. Um, so call it you know, four out of five mattresses are purchased in a brick and mortar store. So either a mattress store like Mattress Firm 
or a furniture store or a department store like a Macy's. Um, it you know really accounts for the vast majority of, of purchases. And uh, you know when COVID nineteen hit and people either couldn't or were unwilling to go to stores, or the stores were just just shut down. You know that was half of our units were were sold through our partnerships with with retail partners. We're a manufacturer that is a vertically integrated retailer, but we're also a brand who sells with retail partners. And that, for all intents and purposes, just disappeared overnight. And, uh, you know, that's challenging. And uh, we had cash in the bank, but, you know, that's all we've got. And we weren't entirely sure what this meant for the future. Our online business, actually, when this all first hit, plummeted as well. Every, everything just started to go down. So, you know, like many companies, we went into just ensuring we could survive, had some cash preservation. Uh, we furloughed about a third of the, the company. We shut down our manufacturing as we had excess inventory at that point since we weren't fulfilling the wholesale. So, you know, it's, it was pretty tough times, and you know, as well as the board agreed to defer comp, and the executive team took a 25% pay cut, and I mean, just a variety of things that we just had to do. What's been fascinating is what's happened since then, and, and it's actually, uh, what I'd say, in these unfortunate times, we've been very fortunate, and uh, re- really two things happened. One is that discretionary spend has actually in many ways grown for many customers. And we service more the premium side of the market and especially on the premium side as families were not going on vacation, not taking their spring breaks. You know, they're not dining out. They're not going to shows. They're not going to sporting events. There's actually, believe it or not, more discretionary spend available. Um, And the second thing is, as they've been home more, there's been a a much more increased focus on home as a category, which uh, we happen to sit in. Um, Yeah, and then you combine that with the big shift online, and what ended up happening is on a units basis, we actually haven't seen any decline at all. We've just seen a massive channel shift where all of those units we were fulfilling through our wholesale retail partners, we are now fulfilling online and we've become an almost 100% DTC company, um, which is not at all where we were coming into COVID-19. And yeah, that is financial advantages too. We get basically double revenue per unit. Um, the margins are better. I mean, there's more shipping costs and things like that. So it's not like it's, it's a completely uh, flows right down to the bottom, but, uh, but the margins are better through e-commerce. So, uh, so all in, it's, I mean, we've been kind of a capacity constrained business. We manufacture ourselves and can only make what we can make. So we sort of ended up in a place where we're fully operational. Everyone who is furloughed has come back. We're actually hiring right now. We're making every mattress we can we're just selling them differently than we were before. And uh, it's, it's really been quite remarkable what has played out. That's, uh, that's great. Uh, you, uh, there's a lot to unpack in what you said, but I want to take a step back a little bit and, and let our listeners know, um, you know something about uh, Joe Megabo. So uh, where'd you grow up, Joe? Um, I know you went to uh, Cornell, interestingly, uh, electrical engineering, and yet you got into marketing and, and digital marketing. So give us a little backstory. Yeah, sure. You, you don't see the obvious connection there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Yes, I, I actually I have two New Yorker parents. I, I grew up in the Midwest in Topeka, Kansas, uh, where I went through all my schooling through high school. Uh, I uh, had had a sort of a sucking feeling back to the East Coast, given my uh, my parents and my extended family were from out that way. Uh, so I ended up at Cornell. I, I've always been lean towards the sciences. I just I love building things. I love creating things. As a kid, I was the kid who anytime I got a toy. First thing I did is grabbed a screwdriver and took the whole thing apart and generally put it back together, sometimes better than before. It's just, I, it's just kind of who I am. So engineering was, was a, something I knew I wanted to do all through high school and, and fell directly into that in, in college. And my first, uh, first job out of college uh, was actually with an advanced technology group um, in uh, General Motors, um, which was a little bit engineering, a lot of software development. 
but uh, definitely leaning in much more on the technology side. Um, it, it was actually at GM, and these were tough times for General Motors. So this was in the uh, early 90s, um, is when I sort of discovered that there's this thing called business. And uh, part of it is uh, during these tough times, they all seem to be uh, having their careers move faster than uh, than engineers. And you know, early 90s, the web and the internet hadn't happened yet. So uh, technology was a little more commodity and, and not necessarily the most coveted skills in an organization. So uh, yeah, I, ironically enough, it was uh, seemed career limiting at the time to be focused on software and tech. So uh, I thought I got to get out of this. I realized I didn't know a lot about business. So I uh, thought I'd go back and go to get a business degree. Not they wanted a something to hang on my wall, but just because I really wanted to learn. I, I realized it was a gap in my knowledge and I found First Chicago, which is now Booth, Booth uh, Business School, and uh, they had a reputation for being academically rigorous and uh, a very quant-based school, which as an engineer spoke to me. And, and uh, that's really when I started pivoting into marketing was uh, I discovered you know, the, the notion of not only there was more to uh, work than uh, bits and bytes, uh, but also that you could take a, a data-driven approach to marketing as well. And I discovered marketing analytics all there, which left there in 96, which is as the web just began to start happening. And, you know, as a, as a data-driven marketer, to have the web blossom at that very moment was just a terrific time to be entering the workforce on that side. Mm. And so one of your early roles uh, was at Expedia. Um, what, what was the, the timing of that in, in kind of the advent of shopping for travel online? Yeah, so I, I came in, it's right after business school, I did management consulting for a number of years. I actually um, helped create a, uh, a software company um, where I was at for I think a little over seven years, Then ultimately we sold IBM all around um, consumer behavior and marketing analytics the company at the time was called the Tea Leaf Technology. So Expedia was one of our bigger customers is how I got introduced to them. And uh, actually a business school friend of mine had taken over as the president of Hotels.com, and uh, he and I were chit-chatting quite a bit on what our software was uh, suggesting they should do to help improve their business, and uh, one thing led to another, and he uh, challenged me to, to stop stop consulting and, and actually do it, which uh, was a, a dare I couldn't walk away from. So I jumped to the other side of the table and went into Expedia, which would have been, goodness, in like 2000 in I believe. So yeah, Expedia launched, they launched um, probably, I think, 98 or so, so maybe eight years earlier. Um, and at that time, as a division of Microsoft, uh, before it spun out, when uh, uh, Interactive Core, one of the very dollar companies, um, picked them up. Uh, at, at the time, it may have still been USA Networks. I, so so it, it already was a major player and uh, it's sort of the shift from traditional travel agencies into online was already underway, but it was still a very fragmented industry and still a very, very high growth industry. And uh, you know, this is still pretty Facebook, um, you know, Google's role in, in searches on anything other than web content was still in its infancy. So, I mean, it was still fairly early days. And, uh, you know, and, and most searching at that time was still just kind of database driven. Um, as you think about search websites, so a lot of, you know, whether you're talking recommendations or personal, personalization or profiles, um, as well as a lot of the psychology of building good user experiences, early, early days. And I, I was there about six years and uh, was involved with many, many advances um, at a company that was really leading a lot of the internet work. Um, we were one of the largest sites out there at that time. Um, it was really just a fun and terrific time to sort of be there as, as the whole space grew. And, and you know, online travel certainly became one of the more dominant categories online at that point. All right. It's interesting. So you were at a, a disruptor uh, in the travel space. And, and when we come back and talk about Purple in, in more detail, I guess you, you characterize uh, perhaps Purple as a disruptor in the in the mattress space and the way we buy mattresses to some degree. Yeah, so pur Purple's um, not entirely well understood in that regard. And, and arguably some of that's our own fault as we uh, continue to, to tune our messaging. Um, so uh, Purple, 
first of all, what, what isn't understood is we're actually, well, we're, we're a five-year-old company as Purple. We're built on the shoulders of a now about a 31-year-old innovation and licensing company. So our founders are, are in many ways the fathers of modern consumer gels. So when you think of the blue gels you see in everything, um, you know, a simple example might be the Dr. Scholl's foot inserts with the little blue gels you put inside the insoles and in your shoes. So that's all their invention. Um, prior to these guys, they gels was sort of something that was a, a commercial ingredient you put inside of things. It wasn't anything you ever looked at. And some of the earliest patents on things like translucent and evenly tinted gels are all theirs. And Dr. Scholl's actually, which is, I think Dr. Scholl's is like a 150-year-old company, but as they were looking to reinvent themselves, all of the gel products they had were licensed directly from our founders. And uh, you know, they got into a variety of gel-based inventions, and we've, we've amassed over these decades over 100 patents um, issued or pending. And uh, they came up with some novel ways to deal with cushioning and some tough applications. And two that really, uh, that really were transformative were um, medical seat cushions and medical beds. Uh, and this was uh, you know, over two decades ago now. And in the case of medical seat cushions, you think of things like wheelchairs. When you are chronically sitting, uh, there's all sorts of challenges in circulation and, and bed sores that are very problematic and potentially even fatal. And they came up with some ways to mold, first of all, some new inventions of the gels themselves. So some elastic polymers that allowed for a certain amount of, of stretch and flex and, uh, and recoils, and some think of it as almost like buoyancy as well as arranging gel in an in arrangement of, of a grid pattern, which creates uh, what in physics would buckling columns. So it's a, the network of intersections across the grid actually create these little load-bearing columns that individually just break away with very little pressure, but collectively create an even weight distribution. And this had some really novel capabilities for things like these medical uses, which is it actually allowed for high circulation, it allowed for high airflow, which allowed heat and energy to dissipate. It, it had much better even weight distribution so that you didn't have pressure points being aggravated, um, whether again, you're sitting or laying. So wheelchairs was a very easy application. And in medical beds, as you got into some tough care things, like for instance, um, burn unit victims, um, I mean, if you think about someone who is, is uh, head-to-toe burns, they want the most even weight distribution you can have. You don't want pressure anywhere, and you want a very temperature-neutral surface. You don't want anything that's absorbing energy or heat and radiating back at you. And this was perfect for that. And this was decades ago. The challenge was, is that making these beds was very expensive and very slow. It's a very time-consuming process to make these large-format gel surfaces. And uh, really what Purple was, was the invention of some entirely new manufacturing equipment that, that only we have, that I mean, we make the machines themselves, that allowed us to do this at scale and at cost, a much, much better cost profile, which went from being a specialty niche product for things like expensive medical applications to something we could actually scale up at the consumer level. And that's how Purple was born. Now, you put that all together, and it means everything I just said isn't dependent on the Internet. I mean, we've actually invented a better way to create a sleep surface. And, and this hasn't been done in a long time. The last real invention in mattresses was the introduction of memory foam, which was over 30 years ago now. So at our core, we are a technically differentiated company with different manufacturing, different materials, and a different offering. The web actually just allowed us, if you think about what happened with like memory foam and Tempur-Pedic or a different technology that came out uh, almost 35 years ago now, which is adjustable air mattresses or companies like Sleep Number, it took decades for them to achieve a certain scale. What the internet has allowed us to do is reach and get access to customers at an unprecedented rate in this category. But the key is where I'd say most of the early adopters of online selling, think of you know, companies, the, the biggest one would be a company like Casper. They were strictly a convenience play. I mean, these are mostly 
commodity mattresses um, made by third parties and contract manufacturing that service the value side of the market. So generally sub thousand dollar mattresses and often you know five or six hundred dollar mattresses. Um, some are made domestically, most are made overseas and imported. Um, and the big thing is convenience. You don't have to go into a mattress store, you can buy it online, it's an easier way to buy a mattress. And we certainly get that benefit too. But for us, it's always been about how do we create a better mattress? And it's one reason even in our go-to-market strategy, while we launched as an e-commerce player, we've taken a very omnichannel approach. And you know, to the point earlier when we were talking about COVID-19, uh, meaning we're sold in 1,800 retail doors. And we do well there and, and earn uh, a mattress that may only have, say, 30 beds on the floor, and we're typically getting four of those slots. So we're getting significant square footage on the floor, and we get it because we have a differentiated product that converts really well. And it's not just because of marketing. It's because we have a different product, which is a fundamental tenant of great product and you know, merchandising. Um, so it, it really is a very different kind of company, and we're on a very different kind of mission. You, you said that uh, perhaps um, the, the way the company is perceived, not by all, but by some, uh, may be uh, your own doing. Do you think that the message, and, and I want to talk about your advertising, because I think some of the advertising is just amazing, uh, whimsical and, and very technical uh, in nature, but you know, really well done. So do, does the average consumer who's out there looking for a mattress, you know, do they immediately you know, think about Purple and Casper and, and some of the others? Are they lumping you know, you all into the same pool? Or is that message really coming through that you are differentiated? It's changed a lot over the last couple of years. And, and a lot of that has been driven by getting our product into brick and mortar stores where you can actually see it and have it hold its own against other players. So the, the category is interesting. We, we looked and you know, roughly three quarters of the units sold are value mattresses. And you know, one of the largest global retailers and manufacturers of uh, mattresses is none other than IKEA, who, who may not be the top name you think of when you think about name mattress companies. But it's you know, and, and Amazon, by the way, is is becoming a very large player, and they're leaning into their own brand. Amazon Basics, Walmart, who was doing work with Top to Needle, has launched their own brand with Allswell. So the the major value retailers. Um, who already have the customer, and given that it's largely commoditized mattresses, um, are selling their own and selling their own in very high numbers. But what's interesting is those majority of units that are moved in the category, and domestically it's about a $16 billion category annually, they only represent about 35%, I believe, of industry revenues, a little more than a third, 35 to 40%. Um, the revenue is all on the other side. So these, these small amount, 25, 30% of units are driving two thirds of the revenue and the margins, by the way, are much better there too. So I, I, I don't have the exact number, but probably close three quarters of the profits. And if you look at all the internet disruptors, they're all playing on the low end. Who the category is dominated by, you know, the two largest players are Sealy Tempur-Pedic, who own Sealy, Tempur-Pedic, Stearns and & Foster and other premium brands. And they're about a $3 billion revenue company, or, or since they're almost entirely all brick and mortar retail, call it $6 billion of the, of the $16 billion. And the other really big player on the premium side is Sleep Number, who's more like $1.5 billion. So, you know, th those are the, the giant players. Um, the, the other big player is Serta uh, is, uh, Simmons, um, but they've been a little more down market and have had some challenges. So... Our, our goal has been how do we not get lumped in with the Caspers and Lisas and Tuft and Needles and Helixes and, you know, on and on. It's how do we get lumped into the Tepperpedics and the Sleep Numbers um, as, as a premium mattress because we start at about 1100 and we go up to more like $3,000 for a mattress. So historically, yeah, it was very easy for us to get lumped into the mix. And we're just yet another internet player. And it's just memory foam, right? And uh, wow, it seems kind of expensive. Is that just, you know, for the marketing? And um, it also, because of the whimsical ads, it indexed young, it indexed much more male. If you kind of get locked into the Monty Python type of whimsy, you know, it's mm. 
you know, it, it's very sophomoric, um, you're going to index mail. And oh, by the way, especially on the premium side, it's over 80% driven by the female buyer in the household. So, you know, if you really want to win in the premium side of the space, you, you've got to be older and you've got to be much more relevant for her. And we were a young male brand, um, which that we had done as well as we had is remarkable, but we were really only servicing a subset of the overall market. And that, that's been part of the challenge is how do we not just appear gimmicky and just funny, but actually differentiated, relevant, premium, and uh, you know, I don't want to say more serious, but but something you would more seriously consider. <laughs> and right. you know, we've evolved a lot that way, but it's it's been a challenge. When when you sell so much of your product in other uh, retailers' stores, you know, I've had other conversations, and I've worked in businesses that are you know wholesalers. You know, you're so reliant or heavily reliant on those stores telling your story and having the the sales associate be able to explain you know what you just said so passionately about purple. How, how do you control that? How do you control the story and the narrative when you're relying on other people to do it for you? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, as as you know, being in the space, it takes work. And, you know, we've had to invest in a field sales team and field support and learn how to be not just an internet player, but a, a great wholesale partner, because it is a different buying cycle. And by the way, even just fulfillment, <laughs> pick and pack, you know, shipping an intra an individual mattress to one person is a very different game than getting a PO for 6,000 mattresses that need to be at a distribution center next week. And you know, how we operate as a business and how we manage that kind of SLAs and inventory, the cash cycles are different. You know, online, it's, you know, it's, it's call it maybe 48 hours from order to cash, whereas now you're actually having to build significant amounts of inventory support it, ship it, and it might be 30 or 45 days before you see the cash. Um, I mean, this was very, very transformative for us to learn to go from being a predominantly digitally native business to a true wholesale retail brand. And, and it really is a very different business. The, the good news is, if you can excuse the pun, a very sleepy category um, there's a lot of price points on the floor in any mattress department or mattress store, but the amount of real differentiation is, is slim. Yes, you've got memory foam or not memory foam, and, and you know, there's all sorts of things they've done to try to, you know, surfaces that feel cooling to the top or to, to the touch or, or uh, you know, diff different ways to treat foams by infusing them with a little bit of gel on top with again, is mostly to counteract just foams get hot. It's like a kitchen sponge absorbing water. They absorb energy and heat. So ways to counteract that. But there really hasn't been a lot new to talk about. So the one good thing we've had is you combine the fact that we've got a very quirky, different brand. Um, we're very bold in our branding. I mean, our, our mattresses have, it, it's embossed. It's not like high contrast, but I mean, we throw the logo right across the mattress. It's kind of purple. We are very confident, very proud of, of what we've done. And, uh, and there's a story underneath. It's when you feel our mattress. I mean, I, I kind of like the first time you lay in a waterbed or the first time you drive an electric car. There's just something really different about it that if you're not ready for it can even be off-putting. And uh, our bed just feels different, and it's it's something for the associate to talk about. So, whether they sell our mattress or a different mattress, what they want is a way to help navigate that customer to a product, and we have a story to tell. And that's the best thing you can have if you want to merchandise is actually have something to talk about. And we got something shiny to talk about, and that's it's just been terrific in terms of our ability to train and get the message out. It's funny. I, I worked for a company called the Company Store years ago. We sold, you know, down comforters and pillows and, uh -huh. and sheets and and all. And you know, we used to talk about you know people wanting to you know not spend on their bedding. And you know, somewhere along the line, somebody came up with the the most obvious thing in the world that you know that we spend you know a third of our life perhaps in this bed on this bed. Right. And, you right. know, we spend way less time in the uh, on the bed and in the bed than we do in a car. And look what we spend for a car 
um, and we we won't spend the money required to get a good mattress and a good night's sleep. So, you know, sometimes those things just have to hit you over the head before you get it, right? But just, the car one's interesting, and I've thought about this a lot too, because the key difference, you know, so I mean, a bed's it's a considered purchase. It's a durable good. You know, it's expensive to get a, to get a premium mattress. It's expensive, and you're going to keep it for you know, maybe a decade. But the difference of the car and where this is just an interesting merchandising challenge is you see cars all over. You see new models. You see new designs. You see them all over the road. You, you have some sense of what's popular just you know, driving down the street. Hey, I'm seeing a lot of Teslas or VWs or whatever, you know, is suddenly bubbling up as, as the, 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 you know, the hot, hot thing of the moment. You know, and you have a chance to actually, you know, you, you get go to lunch and someone in a different car than yours, you get to ride as a passenger and experience other people's cars. So, I mean, there's a lot of cross-pollination of knowledge and experiences and visibility. That's are funny because I agree with you. I mean, you spend a lot of your time there, but you know, you go visit a friend's house and they're not like, Hey, why don't I come into my bedroom and check out my mattress? Um, well, yeah, it's not it's a status totally thing. Not. You know, it's, it's not a status, you know, uh, where yeah, I want to have... check out my purple. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, and oh, by the way, it's underneath that, you know, it's in a frame and it's underneath bedding and a protector and sheets. So you're not even seeing the mattress. So, you know, it, it just, it begs an interesting question on how do you even know, how do you get to the truth? How do you experience these things? You know, imagine, if when buying a car, you couldn't take it on a test drive, all you could do is smell the interior and sit in it for a minute. I mean, even going to a mattress store, you know, what does bouncing or laying on a mattress have to do with how you're going to feel six weeks from now being up on it every day? You know, which is why we have things like the 100-day guarantee. But it's, a, it's just it's an interesting merchandising challenge. Yeah. And, and speaking of, of selling and, and all those retailers uh, and, and the fact that we've got COVID-19, I'm sure there's been conversation around um, how things will change perhaps in store for, you know, laying on a bed. Yeah. I, and and I've, I've heard very mixed things from the retail partners we've spoken with. We have some of our, show, our own showrooms as well, and they, they've done really well for us. It was interesting, one of the insights, and, and it kind of gets to just what we were talking about, one of the insights we had was cleanliness matters, that consumers, I mean, it's weird enough laying down on a mattress in a public setting, you know, and you're not normally laying on a naked mattress, and, and there is just something weird about, I mean, it's like trying on shoes without socks, or, you know, it's just kind of weird to get on something you know, you, you really don't want to think about how many people have laid on this before you, so we, we, that long before COVID-19 hit, we were doing this um, in, in Q4 last year, we started saying, well, what if we put sheets on the mattresses, which means hiding the product. I mean, you literally can't see the mattress then, and we've got different models on the floor, and you can't really see which is which. So we're going to have to rely on signage and other ways to tell you what's there. But we change the sheets daily. We launder them. It looks like what you think of as a bed. I mean, when you walk into a hotel room, for instance, with a clean bed, you just want to lay on it. So it's inviting, it's clean, it's familiar. Oh, by the way, it helps us sell sheets because <laughs> they're experiencing the whole bed, not just the mattress. Um, and and it, it feeds into exactly the sense of, of cleanliness and familiarity that consumers want. So we were already doing that. And uh, I, I think we were a little ahead of the game on this. My gut is that you're going to see more of those kinds of insights and ways to service the customer um, as you really start to think about not just how do I you know, make the product splashy on the floor. I mean, a lot of what's designed into a mattress is just so it will sell compared to, to other mattresses, not, not necessarily performance or how, how it's going to be in your bedroom. You know, we've gone the other way and said, you know, none of that matters. Let's really just create that, that clean experience. And, and it actually works really well for us. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. 
At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. I, I want to talk about advertising in, uh, in a second, but sure. before we do that, you know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about your time at American Eagle, but um, I, I think purple is, is obviously more relevant for, for what you're doing today. I, I'm sure even though you're a, a, an accomplished executive, there must be some mistakes that you've made along the way, not just necessarily at purple. Any, anything stand out of something that, you know, perhaps was right at the right, you know, you, you had the information available, you made a decision, but it turned out wrong. And, and if so, you know, how do you deal with mistakes that you make? Yeah, I, oh, trust me, I, uh, <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and you, know, you can't have it both ways. I've always been a big believer in test and learn, try new things. And if you're, you know, when I was on the, more on the data analytical side of things, if I'm looking at a testing program, Loosely speaking, I would expect if you're running a large number of tests, you'd expect a third to be conclusively good. You'd expect a third to kind of be inconclusive. You know, just, I don't know, it, there wasn't a clear signal on and what worked and what didn't. And I would expect a third to just be total failures. Just, it did not reveal, it, it definitively was not better or, or produced worse results. You know, what's funny though is you look at a lot of testing programs and all they talk about is the winners and there's no losers, which means either you're only testing things you already knew the outcome to, or you're not really testing at all. So you know you, you can't have it both ways. If you're gonna push yourself to try new things and do new things, you're going to have some things that just don't work. But it, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, even individually on the career side. So you, you brought up American Eagle. Um, I got hired into American Eagle. Ultimately, my role was uh, was called Chief Digital Officer. I was, I suspect, one of the one of a handful of people with that title, as it was a very very new title at the time, and one I was never fully comfortable with. The idea that you need a Chief Digital Officer felt to me like a transitionary role. Um, it's uh, kind of like saying the internet is a is a distinct channel to a different customer, which clearly is not true. It's ubiquitous. Whether Whatever channel you're buying in, you're still going online first. Everybody is online. So you know, I, is it different marketing? No, you have a CMO. Is it different operations? No, you've got retail operations. Is it different technology? Well, you probably had an IT department dealing with POS and inventory management and customer databases. And so, you know, it, in many ways, you know, creating a whole separate e-commerce capability is a silo that does not reflect the consumer. So, you know, in my case, I viewed it as a bootstrapping capability, um, which was how do I take a traditional brick and mortar retailer and help them integrate the digital side of the business with a hope that at some point you don't need a chief digital officer and everything is fully integrated. So I, I kind of tried to engineer myself out of a long-term job. And in a lot of ways, that's what ultimately happened. Um, but when I went into it, we had a really, really um, forward-thinking visionary CEO who hired me. And uh, I would have walked on water for him. And he really pushed me. And he was the first, really, in many ways, the first leader I'd ever had that was deeply intellectually curious what I, with what I did and, and actually tried really hard to understand. So I wasn't in a constant state, which had been most of my career of sort of defense. Hey, I'm down in the basement somewhere inventing new things that uh, you don't understand, but please let me do a little more of this. It was more of a, hey, this is a cornerstone of our strategy and I got your back. And boy, was that wonderful. <laughs> I love that. And uh, then he got fired. <laughs> and uh, not that long into my job, just a whole lot of reasons why, but he didn't work out with the board. And I suddenly found myself in an organization that had been a carve up, because my role didn't exist before, and a carve up from the rest of the org, taking on a whole lot of work that was the vision and strategy of the CEO wasn't there anymore. And I discovered that I didn't exactly have the support of all my peers who we were now collectively running the company while we were in a very long hunt for a new CEO. 
And uh, none of them really were with me. And, and it wasn't that they thought I was some, you know, not nice person or something. It was just what I was tasked to do and what I was working on wasn't necessarily aligned with what they saw for their own departments or roles. And, you know, one of the things I had realized is because the CEO had my back and because I could for the first time in my career just focus on getting crap done, I didn't take the time to independently build the peer followership and support that I needed across the organization. And then you take that leader away and I'm left with nothing. And I probably lost a solid year of work having to build that trust up and build that support up and get back on track. Fortunately, I didn't lose my job. Fortunately, the board and uh, we'd accomplished enough by then that I'd sort of earned the right to stick around. Um, it would have been often when a CEO's left, a lot of the people they bring in are out the door yep. quickly after. So, you know, the timing was enough that I had proven enough that, hey, might be worth at least keeping me around a little. But my trajectory was just literally stopped at its tracks. And I had a lot of work to do to sort of rebuild up what we were trying to do and get it going again and do it in a way with full support and partnership with the rest of the organization and not just sort of thrust upon them. And that was a huge learning moment for me and, you know, a mistake I hopefully will never make again. Um, that uh, you've got to build support and partnership. You've got to build followership. You've got to make sure you've got everyone on board, uh, no matter who has sponsored or who has told you what to do. You know, it's just these are the lessons we learn, and this is how we become stronger and better leaders. Absolutely. Good, good call out. So let's go to uh, advertising. We've talked a bunch about, you know, the ads that you guys have done. I, I'm interested in, in your perspective on, you know, maybe help us understand not only the, the themes that you are out there with. I mean, you're talking a lot about, you know, the technology um, of the product as you've talked about, you know, earlier in, in this podcast, but, you know, also talk about the various channels. I mean, I, I go on, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing you, I think, uh, on Pandora and, and, you know, kind of the non-traditional, at least what was thought of to be non-traditional uh, marketing channels. Can you give us kind of that quick overview? Yeah, we, um, I mean, so when we got started, we were one of the earliest players in video. So we weren't first, um, a, a notable uh, play that was uh, a little before us was Dollar Shave Club, who really built their business on some viral videos. Um, at the time that they were acquired, believe it or not, we actually had had more success and more views. And we were both probably e equally known or not known. We were, you know, relatively small companies each. It's just getting bought by Unilever suddenly introduces the world to your brand. And, uh, and, and they, uh, they got a lot of exposure for viral video marketing. Um, but, you know, we've had a very similar um, kind of run. Um, I mean, our videos alone, we're at, we're at 1.8 billion views of all videos combined, which, you know, just pausing for a moment and saying it's effectively mattress commercials. So, you know, we have had, uh, we have had 1.8 billion views of mattress commercials, um, which is just kind of remarkable. And, uh, you know, our launch video, the Goldilocks video that started it all itself has had over 500 million views. You know, in, in part of, I mean, in some ways, it was kind of a crazy initial attempt. You know, we were a young company, or not even young, we were a non-existent company. We were just launching. We had done a Kickstarter to bootstrap the business. Um, so we, we launched actually as a, as a Kickstarter. Um, we launched the mattress. We had been shipping the mattress from goodness, 60, 75 days when we launched the, uh, the first ad. And, you know, you, you know, imagine an advertising strategy. It's like, let's take our entire marketing budget, put it into one four-minute explainer video, four minutes, and, uh, you know, and it either works or we've got no business. Sound good? Good. Go. You know, and that's kind of what we did. Um, you know, now the good news is we hired – a really inventive social media production company to make it, a company called Harmon Brothers. Uh, we used a, a, just a phenomenal comedy troupe that had come out of um, BYU TV. Um, it's called Studio C, um, which just had a remarkable knack for comedy and comedy that just really 
was um, just the right amount of edgy, but not too grown up and you know friendly. And so, I mean, you know, we had all the right pieces. We also actually tested the heck out of it. So we had, I think we had something like 30 or 40 different opening lines in the video, and we tested and tried on all these different variations um, before we actually put any real money behind it. So, you know, it, it was a, you know, we rigged it in a way to get it set up for success with the right, with the right people making it, the right talent, and a whole lot of testing before we leaned hard into it. And uh, at, at a time that the economics were very favorable, and it was a channel that allowed for a good degree of arbitrage. And uh, it, it worked out really, really well for us. Um, and it, one of the things we have continued to do with video, and we've since ended up, we, we produce most of it in-house now, is we just haven't been afraid to keep banging out content. I just, I look at a lot of other companies that they dabble in video, uh, do a few pieces. It's expensive. I mean, it can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to make one of these. It's expensive and they don't always work. You know, they're hit and miss. And some of our videos have been just total flops. They just didn't connect with the consumer. Uh, but we've taken more of a portfolio strategy, you know, which is almost how you do it in media, which is just you keep banging out content. And even for the ones that are expensive and miss, the ones that hit, hit big. And more than offset for the misses, and you just keep at it and you get better at it and you keep it going. And that, you know, that's really been a major part of our marketing strategy is around that content and just the frequency and relentless push to keep that going. Yeah. I, I've seen it all over. So the work that you guys are doing is great. And, and the videos, you're not fearful of doing things that are long too. Um, you know, not just 30 second spots. I mean, I've seen ones that are multiple minutes, right? Yeah, and again, our first one was nearly four minutes long. Um, yeah, and that's changed as channels have changed and how you need to produce content. And, you know, producing a video now is really producing a, a large collection of videos in a variety of aspect ratios and formats and with or without audio or composited text on top and how long it needs to be. And it's just, it's, you know, you, you really have to think about it in many, many different ways. But again, that just comes from keep going at it, keep working it. And, uh, you know, it surprises me how few companies have the fortitude to do that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're all in. All right. Well, uh, I could have spent uh, many hours talking to you, Joe. Um, we're coming down to the uh, end of our time right now. But uh, before we go, uh, I like to ask all of our, our guests, there's uh, seven questions, uh, just brief answers, could be one word or two words. Uh, can I shoot those to you? Sure. All right. So the uh, first one is the, a brand that you admire or that inspires you. Yeah, I, right now that's pretty easy for me. Um, I, uh, I I am unashamed to say I've got Dyson envy. Just uh, <laughs> when I look at what they've built um, in taking a category that didn't have a lot of brand connection and hadn't had a lot of, of, of real innovation and to have created a fundamentally different kind of product, take over the market, build a, a real genuine brand and brand connection with the consumer. And then on top of that cross into entirely different categories successfully um, based on the strength of their engineering design and brand connection, just remarkable. And yeah. it's absolutely what we aspire to do. Yeah. I think my daughter has talked about the uh, hairdryer that uh, is a Dyson. We'll have to exactly from a, from a please i want the hairdryer from the vacuum cleaner company um <laughs> yeah. so, just, just remarkable yep uh favorite app on your telephone i'm very app promiscuous and constantly downloading and trying new apps i, I looked at one point it's been into the thousands um, and I, I when i was expedia i launched mobile for expedia i ran mobile so i've been a mobile fanatic since the days uh since pre-iphone um, actually at hotels.com, I got to launch one of the first 500 apps on the original iPhone and when it launched on app day. Um, so I've been at this a long time, but I, I, my answer would be, believe it or not, the camera app, the camera app means something really good is happening. I, whether it's family or friends or something amazing I've seen, but when I'm launching the camera app, it's, it's for purpose and something I want to remember or memorialize. And those are the moments I most treasure. Okay. 
The last website other than Amazon or Purple that you shopped from? So I, the, the honest answer is Costco, which probably isn't what you're looking for. But the one before that uh, <laughs> was a new apparel site I recently found that I've been uh, enjoying, which is uh, called Roan, which is mostly men's, uh, men's athletic and, and, and some casual wear. Oh, that's interesting. How do you spell that? R-H-O-N-E. Ah, okay. We'll have to check that out. Great. Something that you wish that you were good at, but that you're not. Probably the biggest thing would be I admire people who keep a diary and, and just have that running notebook that they are just, just rigorously manage. I have never been good at it. I've tried every which way, physical and electronic. It's just not how I operate. Somehow I get by. Um, but I, I've always wished that I could master that. Okay. Uh, a charitable organization that you're passionate about? We, we try to, we spread around a little. I'd say if there's anyone that we cope going back to, we're, we're a dog family and uh, have supported through the years many rescue organizations, have fostered and adopted many dogs. So that, that's probably the one we've spent more energy on than anything. Okay. And uh, lastly, other than family, what's your most prized possession? Uh, goodness. I, um, I'm not someone who covets stuff, um, okay. though I am a gadget guy who always loves playing with your gadget. But if, I, if there's any one thing, it's probably my old HP calculator from the late 80s that <laughs> uh, still does RPM notation and I can't live without. Um, so, uh, and they don't make them anymore. So that's probably the one. <laughs> I know exactly the one you're talking about, too. That's uh, that's sad. <laughs> it's the 42S, which is not the 12C, or which they actually started ah, remaking. Yeah. So uh, okay. it's, uh, it's a remarkable calculator. So all you HP fans out there, keep strong. All right. Well, Joe, this was great. Thank you for, uh, for the time. It was really interesting learning about your business. Uh, we'll keep uh, an eye out for all the good things that you're doing and uh, hope to see you uh, sometime down the road. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for the time. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Joe Megabo for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Mistakes. We all make them. Some will say that if we do not make any, we're not trying hard enough. In Joe's example, in his role at American Eagle, looking back, he thinks that he should have done more to build support and partnership with his colleagues. We can only be successful if we are aligned, not only with our supervisors, but also with our peers. Work hard to make this happen. Number two, tune your message. Marketing is hard, and unless you're constantly shaping your communication to customers, you can often stray from what you think you stand for. It's easy to think of Purple as a mattress company, but as Joe said, they're solving a comfort problem. Be sure that you're differentiating your product through end use, quality, price point, and other attributes. And number three, be pragmatic about your skills and constantly look for the gaps in your knowledge and ways to fill those gaps. If your education took you down the path of the sciences and engineering as Joe's did, look for an opportunity to get some business classes under your belt. Being able to read and understand the P&L is one of the best ways to learn a business. I started in finance and moved into marketing early in my career, and that was really helpful in doing my job. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Thank <laughs> you.